Hello and welcome to Word with Web, a new podcast from Lutheran Church of Hope. I'm Eric, and I'm here sitting with Dr. Pastor Richard Webb, who is uh, who's kind enough to sit down with me and talk about a lot of things in the Bible, and so that's what we're going to do here. I've been doing this with Eric. The two of us together have been just talking about Bible stuff and nerding out for several years, and so in some ways we just wanted to share our nerdings and uh, and just a little bit of the way that we've been exploring, and, and um, we're, we're just thrilled that you're listening in with us, and hopefully this is helpful for you. I've heard someone say recently, um, or often, that uh, you've forgotten more than they'll ever know. And so if, if someone doesn't know who Pastor Richard is or doesn't have the chance to, to talk to you a lot, I think they're going to be really uh, encouraged and uh, blessed by the things that you have to teach us. Uh, and I've really enjoyed sitting down and talking to Richard about all things around the Bible uh, and faith and Christianity and Jesus, um, and just just picking his brain. And so that's what we're going to do here. Um Actually, this first conversation on baptism, as you can tell from the title, um, kind of came from a, a conversation that we had about seven or eight years ago. I was in seminary and came to ask you for some resources, because mm-hmm. um, I had to write a, a paper on baptism. And about an hour later, you had told me everything you knew about baptism, and uh, I needed about five or six sources so I could sort, source you, uh, or cite you, but I needed more, uh, but I felt like I had all the information I needed from that mm-hmm. one conversation, wow. so... That's something that really stuck out to me. So I don't know if you remember that at all, but it, it really stood out to me. And um, we've had many of these conversations since. I do. I remember, especially because then I had to go and remember now, where did I get all that? Mm-hmm. So that, hence the six sources. Yeah. Yeah. So baptism is really an uh, interesting topic to me. And so we're just going to dive right in. I'm going to a- ask him a bunch of questions and we're just going to listen and learn what he knows. So um, you ready for the first, first I question? I'm ready. All right. Well, the first one is, um, where was baptism in the Old Testament? Like, what was the understanding of baptism for ancient Israel, ancient Hebrews? Um, where does that come from, that idea? Well, this is wild. Um, as I built my notes, I, I thought, well, it starts with the Exodus story, and that's true, but it actually starts far earlier. Uh, water does two things in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, Water is not your friend in Genesis 1. It's where the chaos is, and God separates the land from the water, so he begins to create order. It's the reverse in Genesis 2, where the wilderness is where the chaos is, and then the water brings life to everything. And then that's the motive, the motif that stays with us for a while in the Bible, whereas we look then in the Garden of Eden, you've got rivers flowing from it. This is echoed again in Revelation, where um, you have the, um, the river of life thro- flowing from the throne of God. So we, we have that whole sense, uh, sort of sense that water gives life. Now, um, both of those come together in the story of the Exodus, just kind of a brief thing. So uh, God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and uh, Pharaoh means to actually destroy them. So God raises up a leader named Moses to lead them out of Egypt and into the promised land. There's a point where there's a crisis, and that is where they've come to what they call the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, and on one side and on the other side is Pharaoh and his mighty army coming down on them like a ton of bricks, and you know they're like, what do we do? Neither sounds very good. We can walk into this sea and drown, or we can get killed by Pharaoh's army. And then God says, well, let's all, you know, let's just walk into that sea, which is kind of this, do you trust me moment? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, seriously, that's normally where people drowned. 
Well, then God parts the Red Sea. So what is normally a chaos symbol from Genesis 1, and, and the Bible operates this way, it loves hyperlinking like crazy, now becomes a life-giving symbol from Genesis 2 because when the sea parts, they go through it, across it, uh, and wind up uh, in the wilderness, and then God closes the sea on Pharaoh's army. So the sea becomes a means of salvation that God uses. Okay, so after mm-hmm. that happens, mm-hmm. is that a, a ritual then that Israel does uh, to remember this this event, or is it mm-hmm. where, where's where's the baptism start? Actually, the you know the ritual of mm-hmm. baptism. Well, that happens um, several centuries later. Uh, the first time we see water rituals actually are in the wilderness when God institutes them. When people have touched something related to death, they become unclean. And so they literally take a bath, and that would be more the water of Genesis 2, the life-giving water that cleanses. But what happens then is when we get into the period where Israel's in captivity, um, we get the beginnings of what looked like baptism, where um, they... A person who wants to become a Jew is then in a river, is immersed, or literally goes into the water and comes out the other side. So they literally walk, they sort of reenact the Exodus story. So now they're on the same journey as all the rest of Israel. They've joined Israel's journey. Um, and, and so it was the way that people became Jews. Um, baptism still kept its cleansing ritual. We know this from a community called the Essenes, and they were kind of like a monastic group in in ancient Israel. Um, Again, probably during the time of the exile, not probably, I know so. Um, so, But they used it as a way to separate themselves from all the the Jews who weren't real Jews. They were were sort of like the super-religious people. So every morning they'd get up and take a bath uh, and cleanse themselves so that they would be fit and worthy to associate with their community. And if they didn't take a bath, they couldn't eat, um, because then they would be unclean. Um, then what's interesting, by the time we get to Jesus, um, John takes baptism again, um, and this time he doesn't use it to initiate um, Gentiles into becoming Jews, but uses it as a way for Jews to renew themselves but not like the Essenes where they were trying to be super religious, but more let's go back and do the Exodus journey again. Let's remind ourselves that we are people who have been freed from slavery, uh, even though it doesn't look like it, because he was saying the kingdom of God is coming. Let's get ready for the freedom kingdom. Okay, so in the Old Testament, I'm kind of restating sure. what I'm understanding here. In the Old Testament, uh, baptism was making someone a Jew, mm-hmm. So it was an identification with a, a certain people group. Yes, it was. Yes. It, was it was kind of the um, I don't know, the onboarding or the the mm-hmm. membership, for lack of a better word, yeah. of that community. The identification. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also the cleansing, mm-hmm. um, the set, the setting apart from mm-hmm. the people around Israel. Yep. Is that correct? Yep. So then, is is John the one who then changes the? Does he change the? The meaning or the purpose of baptism, because you know what's mm-hmm. kind of interesting is as I was preparing for this, baptism or mm-hmm. Baptist or anything like that mm-hmm. is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Yeah. If you were an alien from outer space, you know, coming to read the you knew English and you could read, mm-hmm. read our Bible, um, all of a sudden John the Baptist shows up. 
you don't really have any context for what a Baptist is. There's, the denomination is yeah. not around, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So does he change the meaning and the purpose of it? Oh, this is so cool. Short answer is yes. Let me now detail that out a little bit. Um, the word baptism in English is simply the untranslated Greek word, and that's very unhelpful because it simply means to wash or to cleanse or to plunge or immerse. It's quite possible that that word is used in the Old Testament but never translated into English that way. Um, so to cleanse me might actually be to baptize me. I, it would be a very fun exercise to go look at the, the Greek Bible that was translated uh, about a century before Jesus and see if that's how they did it. But literally, it's John the cleanser or John the plunger, you know, um, mm. you know or John the sprinkler. It also means to sprinkle. Okay. Or, or John the pourer. You know, it's a very big word, which is probably why we don't translate it. And, and so, okay, so does he change things? So let's review the two ways that baptism, or, or should we call it a water ritual, uh, worked in the Old Testament. One is to initiate people into the story of God's people. Hence, they make their own Red Sea journey out of sin and then into the journey with God's people. That's one way it's done. The other way it's done is with a religious community where they are cleansing themselves of anything that might make them unclean. And that looks more like the, the earlier rituals that you that are picked up during the giving of the law. Um, and what John does in many ways is put them together. Um, the other thing is the people who were in the Essene community were sort of, it was a do-it-yourself kind of thing, a DYI. And instead, now John baptizes people, so they're not doing something to become clean, but somebody is doing something to them, and they're, they're literally the passive person in the ritual. Um, so what's being combined are two things. One is, let's go through the Exodus journey again. And let's get ourselves all cleaned up for the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, in other words, let's wash all the, the, the touches, the places where death has touched us, including our own sinfulness. So if we're going to back up a little bit about cleanliness, if mm -hmm. we think about it in, in our modern terms, you know, we have, mm -hmm. we know about germs, staying yeah, clean, yeah. that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what was the reason Israel wanted to be clean? Oh, this is great. Um, Basically, I'll start with unclean. It's the easiest. Unclean is if you have come into contact with anything associated with death, uh, and that would and that doesn't necessarily mean sinfulness, but it includes it. And so, a washing ceremony often it was coupled together with a sacrifice, especially if it was about sin, was you washing off the stench of death from you, because God is a hundred percent life, and God doesn't want death in His living room. Um, and if you think of the people of Israel, you know, dwelling with him. And especially if you're a priest and you do sacrifices in the temple, then God really doesn't want you messing up his living room. Um, and, and it's also like two stories. The story of death will take you out. And the story of life is the one that God gives you. So let's just, I'll do a couple examples just to make it clear. So if you, uh, let's say, you know, you touched a dead body. For some reason, you had to carry a dead body and bury it. Well, that's death. And, and so now you have the story of death attached to you. But that's not what God wants to give you. And also, God is the opposite of death. So God gives you almost like a little skit that you wash yourself 
and there's no magic in it, but you're actually going through a ritual that shows you what God is doing with you. Um, and so by going through the ritual, you're saying yes to what God wants to do to you. Um, and, and if you sinned, of course, it's, it's a similar where you would also make a sacrifice, which is another kind of ritual that, again, explains what God is doing. So both the water ritual and often the sacrifice that would accompany it um, were rituals that explained what God is up to. And then your part in it is you're surrendering to what God is up to by doing the rituals. Now, is the is the ritual, um, like if I go through this, then I have experienced the same thing as these people that I'm I'm now identifying with? Or is it more of a, a marking point of saying like, okay, from, from this point on, I'm now a member of Israel, I am clean. Is it a mixture of both? Is it something else? Like what, help me get in the mind of an ancient Israelite. Yeah, it's Israelite. two things. One is I've been initiated into the people of Israel, but the way I've been initiated through the water is that I've joined their story and symbolically now I, with them, have gone through the Red Sea and whatever my Pharaoh or Egypt has been that's enslaved me, and in this case, it's my Gentile-ishness, um, has now, I've gone through and left it on the other side, and now I am one of the people of God. I've heard this idea of, of living out the, the story, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Is, mm-hmm. Do you see that in our modern way of viewing the world? Like, do we live as a part of a story as much as in ancient Israel? Like, is that a... Is that something that's changed since then, or can we relate mm-hmm. to it? it? Or is it is it hard for our modern brains to relate to identifying to a story mm-hmm. like that? It's very hard, and that's why often things like baptism and communion degenerate into magic. And so, roughly, people either regard the sacraments as magic, or they regard them as nothing more than than devotional acts that don't do anything. And yet, for uh, the world of the Old Testament, which is a world of story, um, participating in the story of a community, or in this case, God and a community, was very powerful, because to participate in their story is to participate in their reality. So, yeah, and and, and, and this, is, this is, again, um, very quickly what I think of our modern world, we're an idea world. Um, if you were to ask who God was, they, somebody would probably rattle off a bunch of philosophical concepts. In the Old Testament, if you were to ask someone who God was, they'd say, well, whoever freed us from Egypt. And then if you said, well, I don't quite understand, they would tell you a lot more stories. So it would be sort of like this. In the Old Testament, um, God is the sum of all his stories with his people. In other words... Uh, to put it in more modern language, um, the Hebrews described God based on their experience, where in more modern culture, we base God on our philosophical thinking about God. And so stories illustrate our ideas about God, where for the modern for the Hebrews, ideas summarize their experience with God, their, their stories, the, the story of God with them. Um, and so it would make sense that their rituals tell stories. The shared history that they have with mm-hmm. both God and the people around them. Exactly. Okay, so to kind of move on a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, in First Peter, 
it, it says that baptism saves you, but also Ephesians 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. So mm-hmm. tell me, what, is, what does baptism do? Ah, yes. How does how, how it save us, but then also mm-hmm. not become just a you know, checklist of things you have to do in order to get saved, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, being saved by grace through faith? Oh, this is fascinating. Um, a couple of things. Um, the first thing is this passage, 1 Peter 3.21, um, so disturbed a major translator of Scripture that he literally changed it from, in this it says, um, let me find um, when I find it, and that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you. You know, another translation says, "In that water is baptism, which now saves you." Um, this uh, uh, this translator was so disturbed that he put and and that water is is baptism, which shows that you have been saved. And in the original language of the Bible, it nowhere near says that. But his denomination did not believe baptism did anything, and he found a verse that seemed to contradict his denomination's doctrine, so he changed the Bible to fit his denomination's doctrine. Um, That's usually not recommended. Uh, Often doesn't end well. Um, And and, and various denominations usually sooner or later wind up kind of forcing the Bible to say what they think it ought to say. There was a denomination that thought it was a sin to drink alcohol, so they went through and retranslated in, in a Bible they had in their publishing house all the words wine, and they translated it to grape juice, um, which, again, that's not what the word is. It's wine with alcohol. So that's a, a thing that people tend to do. The other is, kind of just more broadly as we get into this, um, if you were to get a, oh, let's just say a Lutheran and a Baptist together on the subject of baptism, and they were to go at it real hard and heavy, they would simultaneously accuse each other of having works righteousness. In other words, in, in more normal language, they would accuse each other of maintaining that people had to do something to become saved all the while defending their own position as nothing more than pure grace. So what's going on with all this craziness? I'll, first of all, unpack that crazy argument. Um, More modern denominations, and that would be Baptist, Pentecostal, to some extent Methodist, and and, 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 um, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, Congregationalist, um, Presbyterian to a point, they would see a work. If you define a work, they're going to mean an action of some kind. So if an action is required to be saved, then then salvation is no longer free. Where the older groups, such as Lutheran, um, and again, I would say some Presbyterians, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, um, when they think of a work, they use the more classical definition of a movement of the will. So, for example, a decision is a movement of the will, um, because you don't have. There's no outward behavior, and so, for example, um, many Lutherans are very nervous of people making decisions for Christ because, by that definition, they've done something. Now, I regard a lot of that argument as a tempest in a teapot. 
um, because I think followers of Jesus make lots of decisions about how they're going to behave, how they're going to lead their lives, what kind of values they're going to have, what kind of relationships they're going to have, and just all sorts of things. Um, and I also believe that Scripture is true, that salvation is utterly and completely free. So sometimes we have tensions. So 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism saves you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says you're saved through faith, and, 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 and then there's nothing you've done about it. So which is it? I find the resolution has a lot to do with how we define salvation. By the way, just to muddy the waters up, Colossians 2, 12 has it both ways. So you were buried with him in baptism, that's part of salvation, is that your sins are buried, but then you're also raised with him through faith in the power of God. And that's also part of salvation, then being raised to a brand new life. So we are dead to our sins, our old life. We're dead to our slavery, to all that's broken. And we're alive now to freedom. So, you know, unless you want to create a two-part salvation, you know, where the first part, you know, is something you do, and the second part is something God does, which now that gets really ridiculous. Um, I think there's another way of thinking about it. So... When I think of falling in love, um, I don't know anybody who has ever woken, woken up in the morning and said, today I will fall in love. And then they drop a set of specifications for the kind of person they want to fall in love with. Then they walk around till they find them and go, oh, you match my specs. I shall fall in love with you. I make a decision to fall in love with you. You know? No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, relationships kind of happen to us. Everything from when you meet your future spouse, you may not know it for a while, or you may get restless and, and feel a little down and not know why, and then you feel a little anxiety every time you get in you know his or her presence, and you discover that's because you're falling in love. Oh, and the body does funny things. Then you kind of want to be around them, and then you kind of want to make them happy. And, well, you, you, you ask somebody who's smart, what's going on with me? And they say, oh, you're falling in love. But you're not making decisions, but at the same time, you're creating a commitment to them. You are reordering your life around them. You know, you're beginning to see things the way they see things. You may even pick up uh, figures of speech from them where suddenly you sound just like the person you're dating. Um, that also happens to some degree with just with in non-romantic friendships where people start rubbing off on each other. Um and so, even when we're not talking matters of faith, some of the most significant things that happen to us, friendships and even marriages, don't happen because we decide, but yet at the same time, they, ch they change us. So, I would say that baptism, in, in many ways, is the initiation of that friendship. In baptism, you meet God, and God starts working on you. Um. Now, I, 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 I want to say something, and this is really important. Is baptism the only way you can be saved? And we have to say very strongly, no. Um, one of the ways we talk about here at Hope is you can be wet washed or you can be dry cleaned. Um, and we see both experiences in the Bible. Uh, Cornelius and his household are clearly brought into salvation before they're baptized because they start speaking in tongues before they're baptized. And everything I understand from Paul's letters say that that gift is given to people who trust Jesus. Um, it's not given to people who don't. Um, so, it, Scripture's kind of messy on this one. 
But we do know this, that there are other things that we call the means of grace that introduce you to Jesus, but that a lot of people come to faith just by hearing the word. Uh, In fact, that's normative for adults, even in a baby baptizing church, that when an adult comes to faith and begins to trust Jesus, it's usually through the result of hearing something. So the the, uh, question that I hear Mm -hmm. asked before is, can a person experience salvation without being baptized? And it Mm -hmm. sounds like the answer you would give is yes, but Mm -hmm. maybe it's the wrong question to ask, that that, that's kind of the natural um, result of of experiencing salvation and and becoming a Christian is mm-hmm. that you would be would desire to become baptized, not as a mm-hmm. um, as a gotta do it, but a getta. Oh, absolutely. Um, which I've heard you say a lot of times before. Yeah, I would say the one exception is I've seen certain ways to practice baptism that will give people away a, a load of stage fright, and then they're not saying, "Do I have to be baptized?" But do I have to be in front of all these people wearing a white robe? And look really silly when I come up out of the water. And, you know, so what's getting in the way is just not wanting to look dumb. So, you know, so I always ask, why, why don't you want to be baptized? You know, what's getting in the way? But if someone just doesn't want to do it categorically, then I'm like, so why wouldn't you want to do what Christ commands? Because, I mean, if someone says, I want to be saved, but I want to be baptized, well, then it's like, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to disobey him on this one point. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. That's weird. There's maybe a little, something a little bit deeper that's yeah, yeah. that's behind the question. Yeah. Um, and this maybe leads to another thing about being saved is, um, I think um, I was recently listening to a podcast, and if you ask the average person on the street what they mean, when, if you say, what does salvation mean? What does it mean to be saved? They would say, to go to heaven when I die. So if I say that I will perform this ritual to go to heaven when I die, that's total magic. And it's in and and, and churches like the Baptists and the Pentecostals rightly revolt against that. They're like, you know, but again, a lot of them say, well, you need to make a decision for Jesus to go to heaven when you die. And so we get a, a similar thing. I was in a church where we only baptized adults. And you had to give your, what they called your testimony, your faith story to the elders before they'd allow you to be baptized. Well, being a good fifth grader, I think I created a whale of a fish story for my, I mean, I had the most dramatic conversion story in the entire world because my job was to convince the elders so I could get it done to go to heaven when I die. You know, whether I was in fact following Jesus is another matter. What scripture says is salvation is indeed eternal and it's indeed free. But it starts with Jesus, not an afterlife. And so salvation is literally your friendship with Christ. You're following your friend all the way into eternity beyond death. And the minute it goes there, now we're thinking of a very different process. So if baptism introduces you to a person who calls you to follow him into a brand new life that we often call eternal, that will defy death and will restore you ultimately into the human being God has created you to be. That and, and it starts right now. So heaven starts right now, so to speak, and you don't have to wait when you die. Now we have a different ball game. Because now, whether you hear the word or you're baptized, it's initiating you into a friendship and the story of that friend. 
And that means letting go of our own broken story. So to kind of uh, let you know what's going on in my head right now to kind of make sense of all this, mm-hmm. I work with our small groups here at Hope. And a lot of times when I form groups together, I tell groups to not start in on a really deep Bible study right away because they don't know each other. Exactly. And so go and have dinner together and create a shared history of experiences together so they mm-hmm. they know each other better. They developed mm-hmm. a relationship, a friendship with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. Before then, they start in on a Bible study where they got to review. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. telling everyone in their group, um, you know, their struggles, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they're maybe not ready for that. They're not comfortable yeah. with that. Yeah. So, baptism is almost the marking of that relationship, creating a shared history, g- going through, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus' death into new life, mm-hmm. going through the experience of the mm-hmm. relationship with Jesus yeah. and marking that mm-hmm. and identifying with him as that. Mm-hmm. You can even add together all of the stuff from the Old Testament, the meaning of the mm-hmm. Old Testament that we yeah. brought up, the cleansing yeah. and the identification with the people group, mm-hmm. um, which again, being, um, if if the church is Christ's body, mm-hmm. then identifying with mm-hmm. his body is salvation as well. Absolutely. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Okay. Now, stuff does happen. I want to be careful that we're not just saying you're joining a club. Um, or that, you know, you have a meet and greet with Jesus and then move on your merry way. Um, Scripture is very clear. Baptism forgives sins. Baptism um, literally changes you. In baptism, you receive a brand new birth, what is often referred to as born again. The Apostle Paul says, in baptism, you become a new creation. Um, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, big stuff happens. So, but I would broaden that. That's true of any conversion. So whether you hear the word, you're dry cleaned, or you're baptized, you're wet washed, these are places where this happens. Now, what keeps that from being magic? Well, it's not the water that does that. It's not even the speech of whoever is talking to you if you hear the word, but it's God himself present who does all this. So in that way, baptism is a space where God works his resurrecting, healing, forgiving salvation on you. Likewise, if you are converted by hearing the word, God is doing the very same thing. So we are also we are always um, very careful to talk about these as grace spaces, or as Martin Luther put it, means of grace. And, and, and so, you know, you can't, you know, again, let's go back to baptism if, if someone just says a magic formula, uses a little water on someone and says, okay, now you're going to go to the good place when you die, then they've completely misunderstood what's going on. No, in the waters of baptism, it's meet Jesus on his cross, be buried with him, be risen with him. And by the way, this is going to be the journey of a lifetime. Strap in and, and, and hope you trust this guy that he's good for it because it's going to be crazy. Okay, so moving on a little bit, the, you betcha. the you'd, you'd mentioned just earlier about um, can't even remember which example you brought up, but the baptism of an entire family, mm-hmm. and yeah. that happens in Acts quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why were whole families baptized? Mm-hmm. Uh, had the whole family come to faith at the same time, or was this? Mm-hmm. Um, did baptism happen pre-conversion for some, or you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just because one person came to faith and then the whole family was baptized mm-hmm. was help me understand that 
Oh, this is interesting. Once again, um, we have to be careful that we don't get into cause and effect. Again, God is the one who saves you, not baptism. But baptism is the place God can work a salvation. Now, let's get to, um, even to this day, if you are evangelizing, let's say, a, a, a Muslim friend, you know, someone got, he, he, let's say he got curious. Well, odds are that if he, if you start having a conversation with his friends, that they will get converted a lot faster than he would alone. Because Middle Easterners tend to make decisions in groups. Um, and, you know, if my friends don't buy this, well, then I don't buy it. Or, you know, if, if you have, you know, if someone says, yeah, you know, Abraham's thinking of becoming a Christian. Oh, my, we better go talk about this. And the next thing you know, they all become Christians. That is very common in Middle Eastern. You it would be the same with Jews. There's some unique things about our unfortunate relationship with the Jewish people, which is pretty well our fault as Christians. Um, but it had all things been equal, they would have the same behavior. Of the, is they would read um, big decisions together. The same thing is true for family life. So um, when the families were baptized, I can assume that it was not just the biological family, but the household would include all the slaves, or theoretically, if they had people working for them who were not slaves, it would be everybody. All the workers in the household would be included in the baptism. So think about that, that... They think in groups that's so natural to think of in the first century that if the head of the household says a decision that I'm following Jesus, it means we're all following Jesus. And that was just part of the structure of how community was understood. Um, now, that having been said, we can't prove infant baptism because families are getting baptized. We can just prove that groups got baptized. Um, so this, there's a little dirty little secret on this one, is the Bible neither commands nor forbids the baptism of infants, which means that the Baptist church down the block, I don't know why I keep saying Baptist, let's say the Pentecostal church down the block, can't tell us to stop baptizing infants according to scripture, nor can we tell the, the Pentecostals they better start or they're in sin. Scripture's utterly silent on it. So why would we do it as Lutherans? And there's there are some scriptural hints in this, and I just want to go to it for a second. Well, before we go to that, yeah, you bet. Um, so the the culture mm-hmm. w- is a much more communal cord- culture, most, yeah, yeah. M- much more group based culture. Yeah. I've heard um, that um, Asian cultures are a little more like we we think of our culture as being very individualistic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the same time. We're probably we probably make those those decisions more than we think about groups. Yeah, um, there's you know group think, um, mm-hmm. but you also think about most of us mm-hmm. at least start out the faith of our parents, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, because yeah. we've that's what we've been taught, and so it's yeah, the yeah. people that surround us. Mm-hmm. So would you say that even though we like to think of ourselves as a very individualistic culture, that we do have these elements of acting in groups mm-hmm. in a similar way, or is this just completely a new concept for us to, to, to even wrap our head around behaving like this mm-hmm. in groups? I'll go out on a limb. I suspect we are just as group-oriented as the Middle East or the or Asia. We just won't cop to it. So our what I would call our thinking is deliberately individualistic. Um, and, and so that's why our theology, at least in some corners of the church, is so individualistic. 
But at the same time, why did I tell my testimony to get baptized, even though that was based on a very individualistic theology? Because all my friends were doing it, and I didn't want to stand out. So yes, I was making a group decision, and also I was getting leaned on from mom and dad. So all kinds of group pressure were, were, were heavily influencing a decision that in the theology of my church was supposed to be between me and God and me and God alone. You know, ek veta, if, you know, in other words, that wasn't reality, you know. So yeah, I think you're on to something. Um, here's an example of, of groupthink to the extreme. A mob in panic or a mob in rage all of a sudden, if you're in that kind of group, either in the panic or the rage side, you will do things that you would never do by yourself. Um, a little bit of what is going on with all the trials with January 6th is a lot of people are realizing, well, why did I do that? Because what happened is you got a group together that got inflamed emotionally and off they went, and a group did something individuals wouldn't have even considered. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of back to mm -hmm. infant baptism. Yeah, mm -hmm. where you were going with that. Um, so, there are some spots. Um, the biggest objection to infant baptism is, is they can't make a decision for Christ. Well, there's two ways to look at that. First is um, that is that the way is is making a decision for Christ actually what initiates your salvation. And I don't know if that's a good way to describe what happens even in a conversion moment. You may make a decision, but the way I put it, and this is kind of a cheesy slogan, your decision for Christ reflects Christ's decision for you. And the only way you can make a decision for Christ is if Christ has made a decision for you. The Apostle Paul says nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You, you can't make that confession on your own. You just can't get there. So I'm not so sure that's a solid argument. The other one, I think, which makes more sense is babies can't have faith. Um, and I would, again, I would challenge that, but I think that's a more reasonable objection because faith is, biblically speaking, just at the ground of salvation. Do you trust Jesus or don't you? Um, here's why I think um, that I, I would gently challenge that argument. The first is just human experience. Anybody who's had kids knows that the kid can identify and start trusting the parents. And they also distrust other adults. So there is a real sense of, okay, you I trust, you I don't trust. So, And this is way before they're even able to see well. They have no verbal skills other than to cry or, goo, or, or coo, you know. Um, and yet we're seeing already behaviors that indicate trust. So trust apparently is is not necessarily a cognitive thing. It can be informed by our thinking, but it doesn't start there. The other is when I look at Luke chapter 1, I see two things. One is when the angel is talking to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist, the angel says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drinks. And then here we go. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That's in other and 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 again, um, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a description of someone who follows Jesus or follows Yahweh. So apparently, John the Baptist was being oriented towards Israel's God right there in the womb. 
Um, we have something similar with with Jeremiah. Before you were even born, I knew you and 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 called you. So God was involved in Isaiah Jeremiah's mission from the get go. Um, if we were to go a little later in, in Luke, when Mary is visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John, when Mary heard, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. So we've got stuff going on, um, you know, that that indicate that God can be at work with someone. The third thing is, if you have to have a certain level of cognitive assent, isn't that a fancy term for know what you're doing? Um, if you if you need to know what you're doing at a certain level, um, then what about people who are have severe Down syndrome or who are developmentally disabled or cognitively challenged to the point where we're not sure what they're experiencing? Are they excluded from God's grace because they can't they they don't have the cognitive ability to say yes? And I find that highly problematic. So that's why I'll keep baptizing babies. Now, the one thing that I expect to be held to is then what are we baptizing them into? Are we just baptizing them into fire insurance? Then I think I could rightly be accused of pagan magic. And God takes a dim view of pagan magic. And we, we ought to stop it right now, you know? Or... Are we baptizing someone into a transformative adventure of the lifetime where they are going to be um, finding their lives oriented around Jesus? I also think, regardless of whether you baptize adults or infants, that there needs to be a supportive community surrounding them. Once again, it's not a do-it-yourself thing. Um, Faith needs nurture, and one of the ways God nurtures faith is through community. So as far as the, okay, I'm thinking about, I don't know where this com, uh, question came from, but it's um, the conversion of um, Gentiles mm-hmm. into Judaism or mm-hmm. becoming a Christian, someone who has no background mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, right. um, especially in the Old Testament, I guess, mm-hmm. um, what understanding would a Gentile have had? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about baptism, mm-hmm. um, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, like, was there a, a secular or a pagan counterpart? I don't want to say equivalent, but mm-hmm. would that have been something that they would have been like, oh yeah, this is like that? Mm-hmm. Um, probably not initially. Let's go back to the Gentile becoming a Jew in the Old Testament. Probably what would have happened is this Gentile would have may have been a, a sojourner who landed in Israel and really liked their way of life. They might have then sat with a rabbi who began to teach them the way of life. Now, before they're initiated into it, they're called a God-fearer, someone who's beginning to worship Yahweh. And then they would be told the stories. And then at one point, they would embrace the stories and all the practices like keeping kosher. And that would probably be when they would be baptized because then they would know, okay, I want to make the journey through the Red Sea like you. I you know, want to be the people of the Passover. Um, so, um, similarly, my guess is that happened early on with the early Jesus movement because almost all of them were Jews. Um, it would, I would be curious to know by the time you hit the third century, how Gentiles thought of baptism, because at this point, the old Testament has been connected in a practical disconnected in a very practical way from even Christians. This is why I think 
today, when you, when you think of the modern Christian view, which I think is essentially a Gentile view, um, baptism is a magic act that gets you to the good place when you die. Um, in other words, if you don't know the story, it's hard to make sense of what's going on. Um, you, you know, you, I think it doesn't completely prohibit you from from making sense of it. If Paul talks about you know being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to Him in new life, if just that is explained, you have a sense that you're participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which frees you from your sins. Of course, the richer story is that is a unique way of doing the Exodus. The cross is the biggest Exodus of all time. Um, but you know, so I don't think it completely prohibits people from making sense of baptism. But you have to work a little harder to convince people it's not magic. And the same thing is true with salvation. You know, going to the good place when you die is a very Greco-Roman understanding of the afterlife. Uh, for a Jew, um, what th- what they want to be saved into is the story of God, not a particular place. In fact, the word paradise, the thief on the cross, is is you know Jesus says, "This day you will be with me in paradise." That's a temporary gig before the resurrection. It's a really great place, and you're with Jesus. So if you've had a loved one pass away, um, they are with Jesus. And in Paradise is, is a shorthand for the king's garden. Um, but it's not the point. The point is the resurrection, where the story of God is restored back to the way he designed it to be uh, at creation, and now we move forward in God's story without any inhibition or, or opposition or incompleteness. So it's an eternal story rather than a place. Is it also a little bit of foretelling then, uh, the baptism? So it's mm-hmm. your 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 sins were put to death and you were raised to new life. Mm-hmm. Well, is that then also foretelling of the resurrection? You're coming mm-hmm. up out of the waters of baptism, mm-hmm. the the future resurrection. Is is that tied in there at all? Absolutely. As well? So both yeah. looking back and looking forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you participate in the promise of what Christ has done. And also what Christ will do. And then this life is beginning to practice living in that new age. And while you are not physically resurrected into complete and absolute wholeness, to a certain degree, you can begin to sort of stick your toe in the water, so to speak, you know, and and begin to try it out. And and then the more you trust Jesus and grow in that, um, you know, like a good business leader, he gives you stretch assignments, you grow into them the more the more you find yourself living in this life a little bit ahead of time. Um, or um, as N.T. Wright puts it, heaven comes forward to you. You know, um, I heard someone say, and this is a, another way of putting it, the purpose is not to go to heaven, but get heaven into you. That's good. Yeah. It's a good way to think about it. Um, I've got one kind of random question here. Go for it, random um, time. In 1 Corinthians, it says, uh, talks about the baptism for the dead. Mm-hmm. What is that? <laughs> That's a weird one. If I only knew, I'll read the, the passage so you all know what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 29, um, and this, is, the, this passage is actually talking about the resurrection, and he, Paul is going after a group of people who, who think that, um, that, that Christ was not raised, 
And he's going to say, well, if Christ is not raised, what's the point? And this is one of his kind of many, many examples. So if Christ is not raised, the dead will not be raised, then what's the point there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why not do it unless the dead will sometimes rise again? So the objection is not just to Christ being raised, but to any resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Yep. yep. And what they're, what they're holding is a view that was held by the, the, the temple priests, that when you die, you go off to heaven. The temple priests denied there was a resurrection, and apparently some of that view got into Christianity. Whereas Christians agreed with the, the Pharisees on, on at least one point, is there will be a resurrection. So the view of the Sadducees is his leaked in the temple priests, and Paul is refuting it. And so here he goes with one of his bullet points, if the dead are not raised, what's the point in baptizing for the dead? Now, I know of no theologian who has any clue what this means in the Christian tradition. Um, the only people who seem to think that they know what this means are, are, are the people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they have a practice of baptizing for ancestors. Um, they call it proxy baptism or baptism for the dead. And this is their verse that gives them warrant. And so, hence, all the genealogies is you look up your ancestors so you can baptize, get, you can be baptized on their behalf. And, and, and that's why the, 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 the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has such extensive genealogical records, because um, they want heaven crowded, and they believe one method to get heaven crowded is to baptize ancestors, dead ancestors, or on behalf of. Um, again, my caution with that is it is usually very dangerous to build a, a major doctrine of the church on one verse. Um, and um, so, you know, th there's been other attempts to do that. Um, women wearing head coverings is based on one verse. Um, you know, and there's other things that, are, that people have done um, where they've taken one verse and then suddenly you've got a whole practice. Um, the better way to do Bible study is look for themes, especially recurring themes. For example, the faithfulness of God is a major recurring theme. Um, that we were designed to serve not only God, but our neighbor is a hugely recurring theme. Um, the unique worth of uh, every individual. Um, and, and, you know, that's a huge theme. Obviously, the love of God. Um, also, the consequences for injustice is a big theme, and, and, and obviously another one is what went wrong. We call that sin. You know, those are themes that show up over and over and over again that we can focus on, but baptism for the dead, this is it, and that makes me very slow to want to build a any kind of doctrine or practice off that. It's because we, we don't have the full context of what that, that one yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. passage might mean. Um, I assume that for the first readers, it made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so to kind of uh, recap things, mm -hmm. um, in the Old Testament, there definitely was the idea of baptism. It was more of a cleansing mm -hmm. and um, and an identification with, with the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, John came along and kind of changed that a little bit. He added to the purpose of it. Um, Obviously, with Jesus, it's the identification of death and resurrection into new mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. um, but also a little bit of looking ahead mm -hmm. towards future resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's experiencing the things that the people of God and Jesus experienced in order mm -hmm. for that to be um, a 
place where the a relationship continues to grow. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a starting point rather than a finishing point. That yep, it's yep. it's mm-hmm. salvation starts rather than this 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 is just going to get you into heaven by by doing this. Right. Did I did I miss anything as that you want to add to that before we kind of wrap things up or? Uh, three things. One is I think John the Baptist's innovation was combining what I call the cleansing and renewal aspects of of the, of the water rituals of the Old Testament together with uh, the identification with the story of the Exodus. Mm, yep. um, so, so it has both a narrative aspect. I, we're going to we're going to basically get we're going to do a little skit where we're going to go redo the Exodus again, and we're also going to get washed to get ready for the kingdom. Um, now, the other would be, if I were to just nail down what, what exactly happens in baptism, number one, you encounter the God who saves and forgives. Number two, you're, you're then joined to God and his people in his story and adventure that lasts for an eternity. Your story is his story. Yep. Mm-hmm. Your story is his, caught up his in his story. Is your story. Yep. yep, exactly. Yep. Well, cool. Well, I think that kind of covers everything. Is there anything last that you want to you want to leave people with on baptism, or you feel like we got it pretty much covered? I feel like I've got a nice little mm-hmm. refresher from our conversation seven years ago, so oh, that's yeah. really nice. Um, I would say to anyone um, why I don't argue about baptism, because the most important thing baptism does is point us to Jesus. And if we hyper-focus on the who's, hair, who's how's, why's, what's, and where's of baptism, then our eyes are off Jesus. Good. Yeah. It's a good place to end. You bet. Um, for anyone listening, please be sure to uh, subscribe to this this uh, podcast. We've got a lot of cool episodes coming up and planned. One last thing before we go, uh, we're going to be doing a Q&R episode, so a question and response episode here in a few weeks. Uh, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Richard um, on one of the topics, topics that we've discussed so far, please email me directly. Uh, my email is eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's E-R-I-C dot P-E-Y-T-O-N. Uh, and you can include the subject word with web. That would help me uh uh, organize those. Um, and also, if you have any ideas for a future topic you'd like to be discussed on the show, you can uh, send those in the same way. So we look forward to hearing from you all and, and talking next time.